Welcome to the JIMD podcast, the companion podcast to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. Just like the journal, the podcast aims to improve the management and understanding of inherited metabolic disorders by enhancing communication between all those caring for patients with inherited metabolic disorders, including the patients and parents themselves. There's an extensive back catalogue to listen to, so be sure to check it out, but not before listening to this latest episode on ketogenic diets in metabolic epilepsies. Hello, I'm James Nurse, the social media editor at the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease, and we're continuing our podcast series with a look at metabolic epilepsies, amenable to ketogenic therapies, which is a recent paper published with the journal. I'm joined by Dr. Jong Rowe. Dr. Rowe is a neurologist at Rayleigh Children's Hospital in San Diego and a member of the Department of Neuroscience and Pediatrics at the University of California. Dr. Rowe, thank you for speaking with me. Sure. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this podcast. It seems impossible to go online today without seeing adverts for keto diets or intermittent fasting plans intended to induce ketosis. When we're talking about the ketogenic diet here, do we mean the same thing? Well, many people actually use the term ketogenic diet, but there's actually an important distinction that needs to be made. The ketogenic diet proper uh, is really a medically supervised diet as opposed to a uh, more popular lay diet that perhaps uh, will induce some level of ketosis uh, by shifting around macronutrients in particular. Uh, so I think uh, you know one has to be very careful about what specific diet one's referring to in order to have a better understanding or a clearer understanding of uh, what the diets are. And I know that the ketogenic diet itself in medical terms isn't a new thing. I wonder if you'd be able to comment briefly on the sort of historical context of the diet. Sure. That's a very important question and one that's actually has attached to it a very fascinating history. The observation over millennia uh, for patients with epilepsy had been that those that were fasted or deprived of uh, food to a certain extent actually had better seizure control. And so this anecdotal observation was actually seized upon uh, by clinicians in the early part of the 20th century, uh, where they looked at patients with epilepsy and mimicked uh, sort of fasting by changing the dietary formulations. And so the ketogenic diet as a medical diet was actually created in 1921 to mirror or mimic the biochemical changes that we see when patients are fasting. And so this, uh, not surprisingly, leads to, you know, fatty acid breakdown and uh, systemic ketosis, a little relative reduction in blood glucose levels. The the key here is that unlike fasting, where total caloric intake is uh, reduced, uh, you know, we need to obviously keep patients going with enough fuel. And so it's a diet that enables proper caloric intake without deprivation, but yet shifts the macronutrients around uh, so that you can evoke ketosis uh, by the body. And that's really sort of at a fundamental level, it's really what the, the medical ketogenic diet is. You've used the word fuel there, and we may talk to patients about the idea that we're changing the fuel supply for the body, and particularly the brain. So what is happening when you move a patient over to a ketogenic diet? Well, the deceptively simple question, but relatively complicated. So at various levels, the main thing that people have talked about over the years is that by increasing fatty acid oxidation and increasing the production of ketones, uh, you're actually leading to a, a higher level of ATP production for energy throughout the body. But in point of fact, uh, the ketogenic diet actually evokes a whole host of systemic biochemical and cellular changes that are more than just energy supply. And so 
it's only really been in the last 20 years that we've been able to get a stronger appreciation of what all those complex changes are with regard to a diet like this. So I think obviously, you know, the, in parallel, what's been happening in the scientific literature is that there's a greater appreciation for energy dysregulation, uh, deficits, uh, aberrant uh, ways that the cells operate and maintain their membrane gradients or their biochemical pathways, et cetera, et cetera. All those things seem to be somewhat linked to disease processes and general health. And so the idea that uh, metabolism-based treatments like the ketogenic diet could be beneficial for a whole host of different types of disease conditions and general health, that it's becoming more and more validated over time. And so within the paper, you singled out four metabolic conditions that specifically benefit from the ketogenic diet. And obviously, that's a huge section within the paper itself. But I wonder if you could explain briefly about the sort of specific uses in those cases. Yeah, the classic uh, clinical condition that is really accepted by all as sort of the treatment of choice for a metabolic condition is the glucose uh, one deficiency syndrome. It's a transporter that is involved with taking glucose from the bloodstream up into various compartments like the brain. And so when you have a loss of function of this uh, glucose transporter, obviously you can't get an, an important fuel to the brain cells. What the ketogenic diet does by virtue of its ability to increase ketone levels throughout the body, ketones themselves as, as a fuel can be transported across the blood-brain barrier using these uh, so-called monocarboxylic acid transporters. And so they bypass a functional loss of the ability of the glucose to get into the brain, and they provide ketones as a, an alternative source of fuel uh, that can uh, be very important for the production of ATP. So this uh, rather simple and elegant biochemical concept has been the, the basis for uh, treating uh, glucose-1 transporter deficiency syndrome patients with the ketogenic diet and actually has led to very favorable clinical outcomes, uh, prevention of chronic problems like uh, you know, developmental delay, uh, progressive microcephaly, and other types of neurological uh, issues. These uh, patients also, as you might know, uh, have not just epilepsy, but movement disorders and other associated clinical uh, problems. And so the ketogenic diet does seem to address all of these, especially if initiated early on after diagnosis. Now, suffice it to say, though, that with regard to this uh, condition, um, the ketogenic diet does not work uniformly across all patients that have been diagnosed with the glucose-1 transporter deficiency syndrome. There are other therapies that enhance energy production. For example, uh, there's a triheptanoin formulation, which is an uneven carbon medium-chain fatty triglyceride supplement that has been shown in clinical studies to improve uh, various uh, parameters of brain and general health uh, in patients with uh, glucose-1 transport deficiency syndrome. This is a bit different than the ketogenic diet, but somewhat related because obviously it does affect uh, energy metabolism in somewhat similar and overlapping ways. Uh, so that's that's one, and that is the classic disorder that's been shown to be uh, very responsive to a, a medical ketogenic diet. Another one that was described in the paper is the uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency, you know, which is uh, actually not surprisingly, if you go back to basic biochemistry, understandable as a potential you know amenable target for ketogenic diet treatments. 
this too is a rare condition associated with lots of different neurologic and health uh, consequences as well as early death. And ketogenic diet has been attempted in a smaller number of patients with uh, this type of deficiency. And there are other more complex issues related to this. But uh, I think uh, from a biochemical argument of does the ketogenic diet actually improve energy regulation in these patients, the answer to date so far suggests that it does. And so therefore, this would be an indication of the ketogenic diet for this uh, disorder. Obviously, more studies need to be done. A greater number of patients need to be trialed and some differences in terms of response as well as tolerability need to be kind of ascertained. Another one is uh, succinic uh, semialdehyde dehydrogenase deficiency or SSADH. And while we don't have as much clinical data for the ketogenic diet in this uh, rare autosomal recessive syndrome of essentially GABA metabolism, there's actually very compelling animal data with modeling this disease that suggests that seizures, neurologic uh, compromise, behavioral problems, et cetera, can be uh, actually beneficially addressed by using a ketogenic diet. Uh, the mechanisms involved with the diet affecting SSADH is uh, they're not fully uh, kind of ascertained at present, but it probably at some fundamental level affects the, the GABA metabolism and the GABA metabolites uh, that are somewhat the biochemical hallmarks of SSADH deficiency. And so, again, I think uh, the main thing here is that we need to show more clinical evidence of efficacy and safety in these patients in order to actually uh, begin to understand uh, the role of the ketogenic diet for that particular metabolic disease. There are other uh, you know, rare metabolic conditions and metabolic epilepsies that appear to be amenable. There are scattered case reports here and there. There is a bit of biochemical evidence, but at, compared to glucose one, uh, transport deficiency syndrome, there's far less uh, clinical information. An example of that would be uh, non-ketotic hyperglycinemia. So this is where uh, a defect in glycine metabolism and degradation results in an accumulation of glycine, which can be very toxic to cells and, and can cause you know bad seizures and neuronal injury. We don't have as much information with regard to the ketogenic diet, but there are some initial reports that the KD at a standard ratio of fats to carbohydrate and protein uh, can actually lead to seizure reduction and improved quality of life. There are other disorders that have been tempted. There are mitochondrial respiratory chain disorders that have been reported over the last 13 years or so uh, to be responsive to the ketogenic diet. Again, we have less information, uh, but this is a burgeoning area of inquiry, and I think it represents another tool uh, with which these uh, patients can actually be beneficially treated. We have a lot to learn, but I think this is just really scratching the surface, so to speak. And um, in the last episode, I spoke with Professor Rahman of UCL and Great Ormond Street about clinical trials in mitochondrial disease. And I've seen just recently a Dutch group have started something called the Ketomi study looking at KD and mitochondrial myopathies. Is there a role in mitochondrial disease? You've mentioned it briefly. Is it something that is there's evidence for or is it just a sort of a stab in the dark? Well, so the initial studies were done in patients uh, who had developmental delay and epilepsy as a consequence of a, a deficit in mitochondrial respiratory chain uh, activity. And in that small cohort, majority of patients actually responded very favorably to a ketogenic diet. One has to be very careful, of course, in terms of lumping mitochondrial diseases all in one bucket. 
Uh, as you well know, and others in the metabolic field, it's much uh, more complicated than that. And so I think when we look at sort of the so-called potential indications as well as the contraindications, we need to kind of dissect apart exactly what where the deficits lie that lead to a mitochondrial dysfunction. And I, and I think it's not just intrinsic mitochondrial sort of biochemical pathways at the level of the matrix. It, it may actually reflect fatty acid transport into the mitochondria. For example, uh, you know, if you happen to have a deficit of CPT1 or 2 or translocase, that's going to be a problem in terms of the diet because the diet can actually exacerbate uh, the clinical symptomatology. So those are contraindications to the ketogenic diet. If you have an intrinsic uh, fatty acid oxidation disorder, like an MCAD deficiency, for example, again, you, you don't want to use a ketogenic diet because that can make things a lot worse. So we need to be very careful in terms of looking at uh, what types of defects uh, would be amenable from a biochemical sort of viewpoint and not lump it all together into one bucket. Now, respiratory chain defects, which, uh, you know, at a, at a first approximation, result in a, uh, a decrease in um, ATP production, uh, perhaps an increase in the production of free radicals, for example, reactive oxygen species or reactive nitrogen species. It turns out that at least at this point in time, the ketogenic diet seems to have an overall beneficial effect by enhancing respiratory chain activity, uh, oxygen consumption, ATP production, uh, reduction in free radicals, uh, so thereby sort of implicating a neuroprotective effect of the diet uh, at the level of the mitochondria. So I think the, the ongoing study uh, looking at the ketogenic diet in mitochondrial disorders is, is, is an important one to pursue, and I think many more studies need to be done to really understand fully how the ketogenic diet works for specific mitochondrial cytopathies, encephalomyopathies, or primarily myopathies. You mentioned in there some contraindications to the ketogenic diet. Obviously, it's become a very popular diet for health and, and weight loss. Obviously, we want our patients not to undertake any dietetic change without consulting their clinical team. But, but which patient groups is the ketogenic diet a, a definite sort of no? So I touched upon this earlier about those with certain inborn errors of metabolism, uh, like the mitochondrial fatty acid transport disorders or the fatty acid oxidation disorders. Uh, while we talked earlier about pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency as being a relative indication, pyruvate carboxylase deficiency turns out to be a contraindication because it can adversely affect energy metabolism. So, you know, again, I think the perspective on this is that irrespective of the disease that you're trying to treat with, with the ketogenic diet, uh, one has to be very careful about the underlying etiology. One has to be looking at both short-term and long-term side effects that are somewhat independent of the intrinsic disease uh, because, you know, this is, again, uh, has to be a carefully supervised medical diet that involves a close coordination of services from dietitian who's properly trained, uh, nursing, and, and a neurologist uh, who has familiarity with this particular treatment regimen. So I think realistically, uh, over the last 100 years since the diet has been around, it's really only been in the last 20, 25 years that we've been able to bring some solid sense of science, uh, a greater clinical knowledge about uh, the patient populations and the clinical disorders that would be responsive to the diet. And we've learned more about you know, what kind of conditions, uh, such as those that I've mentioned earlier, that you want to avoid uh, the ketogenic diet because you can worsen the symptomatology. 
You've talked about a greater understanding of the science behind the diet there. When you're trying to run patients, we talk about a classic diet, that maybe a three to one ratio or even a four to run ratio. How ketotic do you need a patient to be for a diet to work? And how do we know this? And so what's the rationale behind all that? The term ketogenic diet uh, obviously was framed because of the fact that, you know, you had increased production of ketones that were measured in the blood, in the urine as well. But it turns out that the role of ketone bodies in terms of a clinical effect or biological effect uh, is still somewhat debatable. Uh, what we know today, at least for patients with epilepsy, is that if you have a high ketone level, uh, that seems to correlate better with seizure control. If you're not ketotic at all, then the chances of it being effective are going to be low. Uh, the stuff in the middle is kind of hard to tell. There isn't a direct strong correlation between blood ketone levels and clinical effects. And in fact, uh, other sort of metabolism-based treatments that affect the diet that are not associated with prominent ketosis appear to have beneficial effects too. For example, the low glycemic index therapy, which uh, is really a, a mechanism to uh, reduce glycolytic flux or at least the fluctuations associated with you know, glucose levels in the blood and the subsequent insulin chase that occurs after that, that has beneficial clinical effects, but yet does not produce any real significant systemic ketosis. And so there are many different ways to get at the uh, goal of controlling symptoms in patients. Ketones have been talked about, obviously, for decades, but it's not the full story. Now, the levels also are somewhat of an issue. For pragmatic purposes, what we know is the following. Uh, urine ketone levels, uh, using the dipsticks, they, they measure acetoacetate, and they're not very reliable. I mean, if they're if the level's high, it tells you that there may be compliance in ketosis, but it doesn't give you a very you know, accurate quantitative detail of what's happening in the body and particularly in the brain. Uh, blood ketone levels are much better, but they measure beta-hydroxybutyrate. And so the relative proportion of the ketone species and their interconversion, uh, their subsequent degradation to acetone, for example, uh, hard to know from the type of uh, assays that we currently have. Obviously, it's much more difficult to get at brain ketone levels, but that's something that can be done experimentally to try to get some insights into that. Another way that investigators have been looking at this for the last 15 to 20 years is breath acetone levels. So acetone is a, basically a volatile by, byproduct of acetoacetate degradation. So there's, it's spontaneously decarboxylated acetoacetate to acetone. And you can measure acetone in the breath. You can also kind of uh, see it in the urine as well as uh, through the skin. But it's, it's largely through, uh, you know, exhalation of acetone that you get a sense of systemic ketosis. The breath acetone technology has not made it to the mainstream at the moment. And, and, and the question really begs, if you can get very quick blood spot assays or if you can get sort of a rough idea of uh, compliance and ketosis by even just taking a dipstick and looking at a urine specimen, do you need to necessarily go to a more expensive technology to measure or assess ketosis in the body? Um, I think there are different proponents on either side of that question, uh, but it has not yet been mainstream. 
the real challenge is to try to determine what the ketones are really doing in the brain. And this has been obviously a lot more challenging in the human population. So right now, we have some rough guidelines in terms of what we shoot for. We want to establish low millimolar levels because that seems to be not only well tolerated, but efficacious. We don't want to get to high millimolar uh, because that's going to cause toxicity. And so uh, this is really sort of early days, even though it's been around for 100 years. Uh, we have a lot more to learn about ketosis per se. You talked briefly earlier about fatty acid oxidation disorders as in some cases a, a contraindication. You've also mentioned triheptanoin. Uh, there's been some recent pay applications in the journal looking at the use of ketone esters in glycogen storage disorders and very long chain fatty acid oxidation disorders and the use of triheptanoin supplements. Uh, given the difficulties with compliance in a ketogenic diet, is there any role for this kind of induced ketosis in these kind of conditions? That's an excellent question, actually. And there's a lot of excitement about ketone esters, um, mainly because of the way that these have been prepared for in vivo or whole body administration, enterally speaking. And so while there's still a lot to validate on the human side, uh, experimental evidence is, is, is strongly suggests that the ketone esters have equivalent sort of efficacy in the model systems. And the biochemical sort of rationale for the esters is really very simple. You know, you have endogenous esterases that cleave the esters into individual uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate molecules. And so you can induce systemic ketosis uh, by administering the ester that doesn't get degraded prior to getting into the bloodstream. And then once the beta-hydroxybutyrate is there in the bloodstream, it can be transported to the brain and other organs uh, for all the things that it does. Uh, so I think uh, that's an area to pay close attention to because while many have thought about whether there was a way of reducing the ketogenic diet to a pill or something that kind of mimics the diet but doesn't have the so-called compliance challenges or tolerability issues, the ketone esters are, are uh, an exciting new development that uh, has a lot of promise. Now, I must mention, though, that the ketones themselves may only be part of the story. And so it's not necessarily going to be that the ketone ester will be 100% equivalent to a ketogenic diet because other investigators and, and clinical studies have shown that medium chain triglycerides, for example, could have direct actions on the targets in the brain to control clinical symptoms, polyunsaturated fatty acids, uh, reduction in glucose. There's, there's a whole host of parallel synergistic and overlapping mechanisms that the ketogenic diet evokes. And so it may not all be sort of reduced down to the level of a single substrate, whether it's uh, you know a substrate or an enzyme for biochemical homeostasis. But this is really another important point. We in the Western medical field always think about coming up with a molecular target with a magic bullet that kind of goes after that target. Uh, the ketogenic diet is not a magic bullet. I think of it more like a magic shotgun because it seems to be effective across many different disorders and it, and it targets a lot of different things in the cell. And so uh, whether they're at the cell membrane level, whether they're at the mitochondrial level or elsewhere, it has a whole host of effects that have not been well appreciated until very recently. One example of that is the ketone body beta-hydroxybutyrate. You know, for decades, we thought of this as just an alternate uh, source of fuel. But in the last 15 years, uh, investigators have shown in some quite elegant studies that published in high-profile journals that this simple molecule, yes, it does produce increased ATP and is used for respiration, but it does a lot of other things. It has anti-inflammatory effects. 
it has epigenetic effects in terms of affecting things like histone deacetylation or for that matter, DNA methylation. And we're just really scratching the surface of how simple substrates like this can have a complex array of actions that have beneficial effects for health. Thank you. It's always exciting to learn more, but also to know that we've got more to learn. I'm so grateful for your time. I've certainly learned a lot. I hope that the people listening have learned a lot too. The full paper is available on our website. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, you could find other episodes on our SoundCloud or by searching for JAMD wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Rowe, thank you. Thanks again, James, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Thank you for listening at home and goodbye.